I think we all, as just as human beings, we have this, this deep desire for connection. We long to, to connect with others. Uh, we long to connect in general with, with something bigger than ourselves. Today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read specifically from the, the book of Hebrews. And then, and then we're going we're gonna to kind of take a, a really quick walk all the way through the Bible and just sort of bear with me. Let's start with the book of Hebrews. I'm going to read from chapter 10. I'm going to start at verse 19, and then I'm going to read through verse 25. Um, And I'll invite you, if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, His body, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Thus far, the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Because, okay, because here's... (laughs) Here's the thing, okay? God loves you. He loves you so much. God loves you so much. God loves you so much. And the reality is that we were made for connection and we were made for relationship with God. It's, it's how we're wired. It's, it's, it, it's just the way we're, we're put together. Like even if you go right back to the very beginning of human interaction with God, we go back to, we go back to the Garden of Eden, okay? God creates humanity. Uh, you know, he, he saw that it was good. He, he created all of creation, saw that it was good. And in fact, we're given to believe that Eden was absolute paradise. But have you ever asked yourself, like, what, what was it like? You know, we, we don't have a lot of super concrete ideas about what this place actually looked like. We have some vague geographical clues um, so basically somewhere in the neighborhood of what is now Iraq-ish, um, and, and that there were, you know, assorted flora and fauna about. 
Uh, and, and many of us would have some sort of a, a mental picture, perhaps, of what Eden was like. But the Bible's actually pretty silent on the subject. And, and I've always thought that was kind of strange. You know, this is set up as some sort of an ideal, but why would God not tell us what that ideal was? Wouldn't he be wanting us to, to be working toward that ideal? But let me suggest to you that the Bible does tell us exactly what it is, exactly everything that made Eden an absolute paradise. And here it is. Adam and Eve had communion with God. Right relationship, a very, a very special relationship with God. Because, you see... Um, Humans, human beings were creatures, you know, we were created by God, like the mountains, like the trees, like the birds, like the animals, um, but we were made special in a couple of ways. First of all, the scripture says that we were made in the image of God. I, I don't know exactly what that means. Lots of people, lots of smart people have very different ideas of what that means. But, but somehow we are a reflection of the person of God. The Bible says we are made in the image of God. Secondly, I would say, I would, I would contend that we are special in that unlike the rest of creation, God didn't just speak humanity into being. With everything else, he just said, let there be, and, and there was. But with humanity... He, he reached down and he formed them. He actually got his hands dirty and he formed humanity. And then he breathed life into us, his own breath, and placed us in this garden, placed us in this place, Eden. Now, when we think of Eden, we think of, of, of paradise, but and the place was beautiful, to be sure, with everything humanity needed, but its, it's, its beauty was not primarily physical. The word Eden actually um, means abundance. It means abundance. Its beauty, its true beauty was this. It had relationship. It had an abundance of relationship. It offered what, what Bible scholar Tremper Longman called sacred space. Sacred space where there was perfect, perfect fellowship between God and humanity. And there were no, there were no um, holy places, there were no sanctuaries, no churches, because there was no need of such things. The whole garden was a sanctuary to God. All of creation was a place for human connection with God. But then, of course, Adam and Eve messed up. You know, they, 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 they sinned. And that communion was marred, and humanity's relationship with God became imperfect. And you'll note that the very first thing to suffer as a result of the fall, of, of, of sin entering into the world, the very first thing to suffer was our human capacity to enjoy that sacred space of communion, that, that sacred space of connection. God comes into the garden, and, and what is Adam and Eve's first instinct? They hide. 
That's their first instinct. The relationship with God had become tainted. And because of that, the relationship with each other had became, be, become tainted and fractured. And, and indeed, the relationship with the land itself became tainted. Their sin, their, their rebellion, their shortcoming would ultimately result in their being barred from Eden, cut off from the sanctuary of God, cut off from the abundance. This is, this is a living metaphor for the actual loss of that sacred space that occurred. So ever since then, you know, humanity has been, you know, sometimes knowingly, but sometimes even unknowingly, we've sought to reconnect with that sacred space. We've sought to reconnect with that sanctuary, with that abundance, with the presence of God. And, and, and there's been this longing to connect with something greater than ourselves. You know, those of you who came up in Sunday school or have been around the Bible a lot might remember the story of the Tower of Babel. You know, quite early on in human history, you know, they decided, okay, we're going to build this big tower. And, and it, this was an example of people seeking transcendence through accomplishment. But, but all of these efforts fall short. All of them were in vain. Because God, of course, knows that, that there is no way that humanity, we could, that we can fill this void ourselves, that we can bridge that gap ourselves, that we can provide that abundance for ourselves. It would be, it would be to him to do that. And so it's become, therefore, a significant part of the work of God throughout history to create ways of connecting with us. <clears throat> so that get, that's what God is longing to do with his people. So what's the problem, the main barrier to that? Well, our sin, our brokenness. Sin and God can't coexist. God's too holy. Sin is, is consumed. So in order for, to have relationship with us, God had first to find a way to deal with our sin because, well, I mean, let's face it, we can't. And God does this because he wants to share space with us. He wants us to live in abundance, to live in that Eden state. And so where is it that, that, that we, we connect with God? How is it that God has made these ways to connect with us? Well, for the beginning of, of, of human history, since, the, since sin entered the world, um, one of the main sort of places was, was the altar you know, Cain and Abel, the, the sons of Adam and Eve, they offered sacrifices to God, presumably on some sort of an altar. Um, Noah, ark dude, um, he, he, when he came from the, emerged from the ark, having been rescued by God, um, he, he built an altar and sacrificed to God when he emerged from the ark. Now, eventually, in the book of Exodus, God gives specific instructions for the construction of altars, but the general idea is really quite simple. As God revealed himself in special ways, people would construct these altars in order to commune with God, to worship, and to sacrifice as a means of experiencing the presence of God, okay? And, and then Mount Sinai, okay? The, the Israelites, they're, they're on their way to the promised land, They've, they've been delivered from slavery in Egypt, and God reveals himself to Moses 
on Mount Sinai. But again, because of the, the brokenness of humanity, God says, listen, I, I, I can't show you my face. It'll be too much for you. So I'll show you my back. And, and even as God shows Moses his back, even a glimpse of God's back was apparently enough to set Moses' face so alight that the Israelites couldn't bear to look at him. He had to, he had to wear a veil. But among the instructions that God gave to Moses, I mean, he also gave him the Ten Commandments at that time, but among the other instructions were, were instructions for the construction of a tabernacle. Okay, that is, that is a, a tent. This would, it's at this point that God gives plans for the building of this tabernacle, this special place where God would connect with people. God initiates this. God makes the plans. This was to be constructed under some pretty clear and specific specs, and it was to be erected wherever the people of God went as they were wandering through the wilderness. It was to be erected in the middle of their camp. So even in the middle of the desert... God's presence, God wanted his presence to be among his people. <clears throat> so this represented a change from the occasional experience of God's presence at, at altars to God making his dwelling among his people, even through this very difficult season of, of desert wandering. And so you can see how God is, is coming closer through history, right? The tabernacle was in many ways a, a supplanting of the altar. And, and so the way the tabernacle was built, there were different sort of sections of it, but there was one place in particular, the most holy place, or the holy of holies, where the presence of God was, was, was said to dwell most thickly. This was where, for lack of a better term, this is kind of where God chose to live. We'll let that language suffice for now. This is where God sort of chose to live. Um, but, but people couldn't just wander into the presence of God, because remember, there's that barrier of, of, of sin preventing us from engaging God. And so in order to protect us from that, it, you know, to protect us from that room where God was said to dwell... They, they had this great big veil, this big thick veil that was to protect people. And, and it was only annually on the Day of Atonement where when priests would wash and they would offer a whack of sacrifices on, on a great big bronze altar and then they would wash some more and cleanse the altar of incense and then wash again and offer incense. And then, then and only then could only the high priest once a year go into the Holy of Holies in order to offer prayer and to sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And even then, tradition held, they would, they would put a rope around the priest's ankle before he went in, you know, just in case, I guess. Uh, clearly, we're talking about people who take the presence of God very, very seriously. They take connection with God very, very seriously. 
And then eventually, after the people are, are settled in the, the promised land, um, God again, in his own time, and according to his own specs, makes arrangements to have uh, a temple built. And so this represented moving from even a sort of a, a traveling sort of place where he would reside to a, a permanent residence among God's people. And which is why, incidentally, when the temple was ultimately sacked, it seemed to the people like almost like the defeat of God. I'm, I, I mean, it's relatively easy for us now with the perspective of history to say that the presence of God transcends any building. But it was harder for them. This was the place where God dwelt. You know, we have a, a situation where God is desirous of meeting with his people, but because of our brokenness and because of his holiness, perfect communion is impossible. You know, so back in, in, in Eden, um, there was perfect communion, but after sin entered the world, you know, they had, they had, God had to find ways of connecting with his people. First, through, through the altar during that era, and then eventually God moves closer to his people into a tent. God moves closer again into a permanent residence, a temple. Um, enter onto the scene the person of Jesus, okay? John chapter 2. John chapter 2. I'm going to read uh, a few verses starting at verse 13. <coughs> Excuse me. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others set, sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle, and he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned the ta their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get, those, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And his, father, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus was saying that the temple was his body. Remember, the, the temple is the dwelling place of God himself. Remember? You know, like anyone who went into the Holy of Holies, into that most holy place, was slain. It, it's fairly common for Christians now to speak of ourselves as the temple, as our bodies as the temple. But at this time, this was absolutely audacious. It's no wonder. This was actually the thing that they brought up at his trial when they went to execute, execute him. This was an outrageous claim. Jesus was claiming that the very fullness of the person of God was dwelling within him. And he was right. 
You know, like, like, like every other good Jewish boy before them, the disciples had been raised on this steady diet of Deuteronomy 6.4. It's called the Shema Israel. This was the, the centerpiece of the Jewish faith. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then that passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy then goes on to talk about the importance of, of this, how important it was, how central it was, and how to make sure that they, they pass this truth on to their children and their children's children. Unlike all of the other nations around them, Israel had one God, one God, one. And yet here are the disciples seemingly in defiance of generations of ancestors calling a man their Lord and God. This, wasn't just, this doesn't just represent a change of denomination for them. This was a complete upending of their worldview. And yet Jesus does not contradict them or rebuke them. God's work, remember, was bringing back that sacred space, that Eden, that, that abundance. That's why, that's why Jesus came. Let me read a, a quick passage from John chapter 10. I'm going to start reading at verse 7. <clears throat> Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who, ever, all who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. If you read this passage in the English Standard Version translation, it says, I will come that they might have life, and they might have it more abundantly. Jesus came that we might have abundance of life, that we might have Eden, that we might enjoy sacred space with God. He left, he left the glory of heaven in order to bring people closer to that abundance that we so desperately long for. He was, in the words of John chapter 1, he was the word made flesh, making his dwelling among us, tabernacling among us. And, and, the, and the thing is, folks, <laughs> this good news only gets better. Because after much to do, Jesus is wrongly accused, and, and he's, he's sentenced to, to execution by crucifixion. And, um, and as he's dying, as he dies, as he breathes his last, we get this uh, remarkable passage. I'm going to read from Mark 15. I'm going to start at verse 37, where it says these remarkable words. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. 
And the curtain of the, of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The Bible seems to throw in this sort of gratuitous line at the death of Jesus about the, 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 this curtain in the temple. But remember, this is the curtain that, that separates humanity from the, the manifest presence of God, torn in two from top to bottom at Jesus' death. The very thing that at least symbolically, but to the people at the time, not just symbolically, separated humanity from God was gone. Because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we need no longer be separated from God by our sin. This is, this is huge. And, and just to give you an idea of how huge it is, I, I want to contrast a couple of different worship scenes. Uh, one worship scene in the Old Testament with another worship scene in the New Testament. Um, they're, they're pretty similar in some ways, but there are some really key differences that I want to I show you. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with, with a, a few verses from Isaiah chapter 6. Okay? In Isaiah chapter 6, that's starting from the beginning, <coughs> Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Mark that. Now I'm going to jump over to Revelation chapter 4. And I'm going to read a passage from, from the book of Revelation. Remarkably similar in some ways, but with a few key differences. After this, John says now in Revelation, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there was before me a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there, were, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. <clears throat> and in the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. 
and they were covered in eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So we've got these two passages of Scripture, very similar in a lot of ways. In both cases, you have a human being that is, that is being shown the glory of God and, and are clearly overwhelmed by what they see. You can, you can, you can hear both John and, and, and Isaiah. It's like they're grasping for words to describe what they say. It was, his face was like this, and the scene was like this, and, and there's immense power, and things are shaken, and, and, there are, and there are heavenly beings that declare the holiness of who God is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, they all say. A couple of the key differences, though, you notice in, 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 the, in, the old, in the Old Testament passage, with two wings they're flying, with two they're covering their feet. Remember what they were doing with their, others, with their other wings? They covered their faces. In the New Testament passage, the heavenly creatures, it says they have eyes all over, even under their wings. We go from a place of, of having to cower before the holiness of God to... to, to to looking full on to the glory of God. In the Old Testament passage, what's the human response to the holiness of God? Woe is me. Woe is me. I'm undone. You look in the New Testament passage, what's the response? Worthy. Hands thrown up, worthy, worshiping God. In both cases, we're, we're conscious of the greatness and the holiness of God. But it seems to me that because of the work of Christ, we can go into the throne room of God. We can approach the throne and we can worship at his feet. Because of the work of Christ on the cross, because that has redeemed all of creation, we who have chosen Christ and have accepted God's forgiveness can enter directly into the presence of Almighty God and to worship him. Now, Jesus is Jesus, right? Um, no grave is going to hold him. You know, spoiler, spoiler alert for Easter in a couple of weeks, he rises from the dead. <laughs> Sorry if that wrecked it for you, but he does. Um, but shortly thereafter, Jesus leaves, he ascends to heaven. But before he goes, he says, he says, it's better for you that I go. Now, how, how could this be? 
How can we get closer to this abundance? If, if God's movement through history is coming closer to his people, how can we get closer than this face-to-face, Jesus-in-front-of-us abundance? Well, it's because after Jesus ascends to heaven, in Acts chapter 1 and 2, the Holy Spirit is sent to indwell believers. Remember that the temple is the dwelling place of God. So therefore, if the Holy Spirit, who is the fullness of God, comes to indwell us, then we are the temple of God with Jesus as our great high priest. I'm going to read that passage from Hebrews once again. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. As you see the day approaching. Because you see, it doesn't even stop there. If you read Revelation chapter 21, John is basically, he's getting the, the grand tour of the new Jerusalem. He's getting the grand tour of heaven, and he discovers that there's no temple there. There's no sanctuary there. Why? Because the temple, God himself and the Lamb are present. There's no need for a temple. There's no need for a temple anymore because then... When Jesus returns and makes all things new, we will be back where we started in Eden. Perfect, absolutely unmarred communion with God. Perfect relationship, perfect abundance. But for now, here we are. And and while we're here, you know, doing the best we can through the power of the Holy Spirit within us and with Holy Scripture as our guide, we're we're, we're doing our best to sort out what it means to do life in in light of these realities, how to to bless our world and how to, um, as Scripture puts it, to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. While we are here, Jesus gives us the sacrament of Holy Communion by which we can remember what it is that he's done for us. To remember that we are so loved by God that he came near and he died for us. We're offered offered the bread as a reminder of his broken body. 
We're offered the cup as a reminder of his shed blood for us, a reminder of the abundance of the Eden that can be ours even now, which is but a taste of the abundance that is yet to come in.